There are two major themes of the Bible. The Bible deals with two major themes. The way to God and the walk with God. When you open the Bible, you will discover one theme. It will be the way to God. And even in the Old Testament, that way to God is described. And like a marvelous symphony, it moves toward the crescendo of the cross, God's final revelation in Christ of His love and redemption. The way to God is described in the Scriptures. But the walk with God is also described in the Scriptures. And I think that sometimes we have emphasized the way to God and we have neglected the walk with God. Now I believe in evangelical or evangelistic preaching, pointing out the way to God. I did some of that this morning. But I also believe that we need to emphasize our walk with God. As a matter of fact, the greater part of the Scripture deals not with the way to God, but the walk with God. I've discovered, and I think that that may be true some of, of many of us here tonight, that we know the way to God, but we don't know how to walk with Him. In my discipleship group that meets on Sunday morning, we were just sitting around the table this morning talking about where we, are, where we feel the weakest in the balance of life, which involves the vertical and the horizontal. And about the unanimous testimony of people sitting around the table was that before that discipleship class began, now this is the testimony of some of those who, <coughs> excuse me, who have been Christians for several years, that before that discipleship class began, they really didn't know how to walk with God. Now, when we become a Christian or when we find the way to God, where do we go from there? Where do we go from here? Now, the book of James talks about the walk with God. It doesn't talk too much about the way to God, but it talks about the way to walk with God, the walk of God. It is a practical book. It has been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. And it talks about how to live for God in a rare way. It is not a theological book. Martin Luther rejected the book of James and said that it wasn't, shouldn't even be canonized in the New Testament. He called the book of Romans the purest form of theology ever written. And he called the book of James a faulty bit of straw. It is not a theological book. The name of Jesus is only mentioned twice in the book of James. There is no mention of the cross and there is no mention of the resurrection or the Holy Spirit. It echoes the moral thunder of the prophet Amos and it breathes the spiritual atmosphere of the ethic Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. And James has no patience with the religion that is just profession only. He has no patience with that. And he calls for honesty in one's relationship with God. He calls for us to make our practice equal to our profession. 
In other words, James says, if you believe like you should, why do you live like you shouldn't? You know, that's a question that's really bothered me. It bothers me uh, about young people. And it bothers me about adults. We have a real big bad habit of talking about what we believe and we talk about the fact that we are orthodox and we believe like we should. Why don't we, why do we live like we shouldn't? One of the greatest hindrances to uh, the ministry as I've seen it is, uh, is the fact that so many people believe one way and act another. While I was pastoring out in West Texas, one of the young men of our church, one of the leaders of our church, I mean, he was orthodox, a leader through and through in our youth group. And when we'd have revivals, he'd be on front row, like, uh, you know, just gung-ho, and, uh, and visit, man, he would visit to get young people there, etc. And he believed exactly like he was taught to believe. And... Uh, and then he'd go to school and act another way. The question of the book of James is a question you and I are going to have to deal with, and it really sifts us, is that why is it that we act one way and profess another? Why is it that we believe one thing and act another? If we claim to be infested with a disease, where's the fever? If we claim to believe the truth, why are we living a lie? So that the theme of the book of James is that we are to live in accordance with our religious profession. He's concerned with a faith that is produced in action. For really, a faith that does not act itself out in daily action is not really worth much at all. Now who is the writer of the book of James? He identifies himself as the bondservant of God and of Jesus. He was the half-brother of Jesus. James, the half-brother of Jesus. He was born and raised in the same family with Jesus. Now, if you have your New Testament, I, wanna, I want you to look over to the 13th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, and we'll look at this reference to James and his family. Chapter 13, verse... 53, and it came about that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from them, and coming to his hometown, he began teaching them in their synagogue, so that they became astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not, this, is not his mother called Mary? 
and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where did this man get all these things? James had a big brother named Jesus. And it is obvious that James was the, was the next in line with regard to age. He was the next oldest of the people who lived in that home. Jesus was the oldest and then James. Have you ever, um, do you have a big brother? Have you ever lived in a, in a household with a big brother? You know, that can be the, that can be a painful experience. I had a, I had a big brother and an and a older sister. And if you, I see some smiles on some of your faces because you, you have memories of a bigger big brother. Now, they can be the most obnoxious and uh, uh, repulsive people in all the world. Can you imagine what it must have been like to have had Jesus as a big brother? He never did anything wrong. He never sinned. Uh, he always obeyed his parents. Everything they said, he did. He always picked up his clothes. He always uh, took his turn washing the dishes. He was a model child. The scripture said he was absolutely, totally obedient to his parents. He never did anything wrong. And James lived with this big brother. And what was his attitude about Jesus? Well, in Mark, the third chapter, verse 20, it gives us a, a description or a picture of James's attitude toward his big brother. He wasn't really too fond of him. He was intimidated by him. And when Jesus began to do what he did and he began to teach what he taught, the people thought he was crazy and uh, his own family thought he was deranged. And so James went with his brothers and his mother and they were going to, to get Jesus and they were going to bring him home and let him, you know, confine him there. And they talked to Jesus and they thought he was a nut. They thought he was crazy. The Living Bible says they thought he was out of his mind and Barclay said they thought he was deranged. Now James the brother of Jesus, the little brother of Jesus, growing up in that home, having to live with that kind of model brother, and then seeing him out in the, in the world, everybody thought, or the Pharisees thought he was crazy, and his family thought he was a nut out of his mind. Now watch what happens. James says in verse 1, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know whether you catch that or not, but there's some tremendous, there's a, there's a magnitude in that statement. Now, here is a little brother who thought his brother was deranged, was out of his mind, was a nut, and he came to a place in his life where he became a bondservant to that man. Jesus. And you imagine what kind of barriers that were overcome to get to that place where James submitted to the lordship 
of Jesus Christ and recognized himself as a bondservant to him. That's a tremendous step of faith. And it's interesting that James did not refer to himself as the brother of Jesus. He, did, he wasn't a name dropper. As a matter of fact, the book of James deals with the fact that you can lay aside the mask and the pretenses and you can stop being a name dropper and you can take off the mask and be yourself and be normal and human. He doesn't name drop. He doesn't claim to be the brother of Jesus and use that. For he wanted this to be known, that his relationship to Jesus Christ was a relationship not based upon the bloodline of his parents, but upon the grace of God and his submission to Jesus. And sometime if you want to catch the, the, the impact of that, you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, and the scripture says that Jesus, the resurrected Christ, appeared to James. You know, when I read that, I just let my mind, you know, uh, used a little bit of imagination to what happened. That's an interesting idea that one day here's James all alone, all by himself, and all of a sudden Jesus, his brother, who he whom James knew best, all of a sudden appears to him resurrected from the dead. And James crossed that barrier that existed in the, in, the, in the prejudice of growing up with his brother, seeing him and knowing him as a human being, saw him as a man just like he was a man, saw him resurrected from the dead after he felt that or thought that Jesus was cra crazy and deranged and he submitted his life to him as a servant, as a bondservant, and yielded to him as God. Now it says to me that it doesn't matter tonight what barriers exist between your faith and Jesus Christ. There could be no greater barrier than that one. Any man anywhere can find and accept and submit to and yield to the sovereignty and the lordship of Christ, a bondservant of God. Now, to whom was this letter written? You'll notice in your outline that it was written to the Jews who were dispersed and scattered. Now, there's sometimes when suffering comes, God perfects us and conforms us to the image of His Son. But sometimes... Suffering crushes. And because of the constant pressure of that suffering and trouble, as it relates to these Jews to whom James wrote this epistle, they begin to buckle under the pressure and they begin to live a lie. They became harsh and critical. They begin to yield under the pressure of the troubles and their Christianity was no longer really the expression of their commitment to God. It was a lie. It was a sham. It was a pretense. And so James is writing to these Christians who are dispersed, and he's saying this, in essence. Why don't you stop the pretense? 
Why don't you stop pretending? Just relax and serve God in practical Christianity. The main theme of the book is this. A person who has found the way should genuinely walk in it. Now I need to emphasize this again because I'm talking tonight, right, I think, right where we live. If you have found the way to God, are you walking in the way? Is your life consistent with your profession? One night my phone rang and, and it was way in the night and it was this, this girl, high school girl, leader in our youth group and she called in real in distress and she said, can I come over to the church and, and meet you? And I said, you, you come to the church and you bring your daddy and I'll meet with you and we'll talk. And we sat down in my office and this is one of our finest young people. And she was crying, and she'd been involved in some things that night. She'd, her father had come and found her, and she was ashamed, remorse, convicted. And as we talked, this is what she said. She said, if people really knew who I really am, they would hate me. I wonder what goes on behind the mask of the religious profession. That's what James is getting at. Folks, the most practical book in the New Testament is this. It doesn't do any good to wear the mask and pretend on Sunday if you're not going to live it out on Monday. If you believe like you should, why are you acting like you shouldn't? That's the main thing. The key section of the book is chapter 2, verse 14. Every New Testament book has a main section. The main section is chapter 2, verses 14 through 20. James is preaching a genuine salvation that has works accompanying it. Now, when you read the book of James, if you don't understand that, you, you, it seems like it's emphasizing work salvation. It's not. The emphasis is a salvation that produce, produces works. For works is the fruit of the saving experience and not the root of it. But the key section indicates that if a person really has saving faith, he will have Christian works. And there are some key terms, and these key terms are faith, works, doers, brethren. Now I want you to just notice with me, and if you'll do that, then we'll be through. The outline of the book as we're going to deal with it. Let me, let me show you how to read this outline in the, center section, in the center part of the page. And by the way, you need to keep this page and bring it back with you from time to time. 
On the left, you'll see the, the statement faith. When stretched, it doesn't break. That's the theme of chapter 1. Faith, when stretched, it doesn't break. But what it does, faith, when it's genuine faith and it's stretched, it produces genuine stability. And that's the work it produces. A young man came up to me one time. He'd been off to Texas Tech, and he was a, about a senior. He said, you know, my parents took me to church all my life, and they taught me what I ought to believe, and, and, and I just accepted it, never questioned it. And he said, I got off to school. I had atheists for teachers. I had dorm uh, roommates and people in the dorm who just ridiculed and made fun of the Christian faith. And he said, my faith was stretched and tested. And he said, I began to doubt and I worked through that thing. And he said, I struggle with it and I questioned. But he said, you know, now I have my own faith. And it really means something to me. Genuine faith, when it's stretched, produces stability. Do you have a faith that will, that will stand when it's tested? That's the question. And that chapter divides into four sections. There is the greeting in verse 1. There, there, there are the trials of life when trouble comes. And that faith is stretched through those troubles. What does it produce? Stability. And there's temptation to sin. And that faith is stretched. And it produces resistance to temptation. And there is response to Scripture. And that faith is made stable. Chapter 2, when faith is pressed, it doesn't fail, but it produces genuine love. And so he deals with genuine love as it relates to partiality and prejudice. When people come in, and we've been doing this in our morning, our devotional, our family this week, uh, reading from James. When somebody comes in and he's not well-dressed, James says, you're going to tell him to take a back seat and the wealthy you bring down to the choice seat. Prejudice and partiality, indifference and intellectualism, obedience and action. When pressed, faith produces genuine love. In chapter 3 and 4, when faith is expressed, it doesn't explode. It produces genuine control and humility. And when faith is distressed, it doesn't panic. It produces patience. With regard to money matters, sickness and sin, carnality and correction. Now this question. Back to the original theme and the question of the book. When you and I open up these pages and we begin to look into this thing, what are we going to find with regard to our life? What happens to us when trouble comes and trials? How do we respond with regard to the unfortunate? Do we practice genuine Christianity with regard to partiality and prejudice? What about our Christianity with regard to money? What are we going to, how are we going to justify the way we talk in our profession, our Christianity, our criticism, our gossip, the way we cut one another down, the way we talk about one another.
How does that justify with our Christianity? How does it relate to it? Then when we get to that last page, that last chapter, and it talks about power in prayer and the supernatural and healing. How are we going to justify our Christianity when there is no power in prayer and there is no power in ministry? And so I invite you these days in preparation for this study, I invite you to do this. I'll ask you to begin to read this book every day and I'll challenge you, I'll dare you to come every Sunday night and let's investigate our Christianity in light of the profession of our Christianity. Would you join me in prayer? After we've prayed, after we've prayed, would you ask yourself this question? Am I living like I should? I know what I'm professing. I know what I believe. Am I really living it? And if you honestly and sincerely can ask yourself that question and it comes back to you that life is, for you, the Christian life is not genuine, it's not honest, it's not sincere, it's just lip service, and you feel God leading you to make rededication or recommitment of your life. We'll ask you to do that, just as the organist and pianist play after we've had a moment of prayer.